We're going to be in the book of Matthew today in chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 24, and we're going along in this series about parables, and this parable is what has been popularly known as the wheat and the tares, has some similarities to the parable that we studied last week, but we're going to dive into it a little bit here together. So let me read this passage as you follow along, and then we will pray. Starting in verse 24. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not, didn't you, basically, didn't you not, or did you, (laughs) woo, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And skipping down to verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age." The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray together. O God, we thank you for this morning to gather together and worship. We thank you that you are a God who heals up us and raises us up, Lord, and brings us into your presence. God, we're thankful for this word. We're thankful for our Christ and how he taught faithfully your word to us and how he reigns on high. Lord, I ask that you give us ears to hear this morning. And Lord, give us hearts so that we can understand. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So basically, last week after Larry gave his sermon, uh, I went into work that week. And I'm always surrounded by a bunch of scholars and Knox people. And so it's kind of a seething, like, little theological situation. And Larry's sermon kind of created somewhat of a buzz in the area. We all started talking about it, and we started, you know, geeking out a little bit and talking about the Greek and how to understand this and that and what it's about and all these other things. And it just it put to my mind that even as insiders, right, even as those who are disciples of Christ, we kind of put ourselves in the disciples' place. Like, the crowds get to hear the parable part, and then we get to we get that inner circle, and we get the explanation. But even with that explanation, these are difficult to interpret, these parables. And in preparing for this, I saw just how much of a task it was to hold all this together and to interpret it and to to prepare for it. So you'll have to just bear with me. A lot of my conclusions even are somewhat tentative in my own mind. I'm like, oh, I kind of go this way, but I I think it's about this. And um, but I think we'll come away with with the main points. But what's beautiful about it, too, is that as we kind of mull over these parables, we're gathered together around the feet of Jesus, around the feet of our teacher, and we're listening to him. And learning from him. So um, that's at least one thing that we have there. But a few things before we begin 
keep in mind that we do have the cheat sheet, <laughs> right? We, so as we read this, we read this as people who have heard these parables um, often. But even if we haven't heard them often, we just read as we get through the second part of the interpretation, we actually want to keep sort of the answers of Christ's interpretation of the parable in our mind as we go through the first section. Um, and basically, in a summary, the one who sows is the son of man. The good seed, the wheat, the plants, and the grain variously are the sons of the kingdom. The field is the world, we know. The enemy is the devil. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. But there are some elements that we'll notice that are uninterpreted by Jesus. He doesn't give sort of a key for them. The sleeping men, the servants, and the barn. Jesus doesn't say, okay, here's what the barn is, or here's what the sleeping man is. And we don't want to put too much emphasis there because Jesus doesn't emphasize that. But as we work through, we, we can at least think to ourselves, what picture and what part do the, some of these play as we go along? So let's begin in verse 24. He put another parable to them, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And I just want to stop here because there's some really obvious things in this parable that we might be so used to we just might skip over but the kingdom of heaven is like a man right we don't reduce it to an, it's not just about a man it's about a man who sowed good seed in a field and what took place that's what the whole meaning of the kingdom of heaven is going to be compared to but it is striking that it begins it's compared to a man right and what he's going to do in this field and how that's going to play out and it reminds me immediately of psalm 8 what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And we, then we go back farther and we think of Adam. God made a field and put a man there to govern it, much like our parable, a rich, blessed landowner in charge of watching over the harvest of the field, watching and keeping the garden. So already, just, compared to a man, that's just, it's loaded with this idea of a field and a harvest and a man who looks over this harvest. So in verse 25, we read, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the sleeping men here are, they're not defined, right? Men who are sleeping. Um, if we imagine the picture in our minds, we can imagine a is obviously a very wealthy landowner because he has a number of servants that are at his disposal. So he's rich, he's well-to-do, he has a large uh, field, and it pro probably has a wall or a fence or a gate of some kind. So we might ask ourselves, well, maybe these sleeping men are guards, and they're at the gate, and they should be watching, and they're not. And they kind of, you know, they're asleep on the job, and the enemy gets in and does this damage. It's actually probably more likely that they're actually just sleeping at night. And it might also be, the sleeping men might also be the servants that come later in the parable. Because we're not told the, the servant or the, the Lord of the, the vineyard or the field, he doesn't stand up and say, hey, you guys should have been watching and you weren't and you're in trouble or anything like that. He just goes, okay, we'll, we'll take care of this, no, no worries. So they're not condemned at all. So it's most likely amplifying the maliciousness of this figure, that he does these things at night that when people are properly sleeping, he takes advantage of that fact and slips in unawares. And so that's probably the better way to read that. But we, we could have here guards at the gate who should have been watching and didn't. And, you know, we have connections to the disciples that they watch that you enter not in a temptation, right? And they fall asleep 
while Jesus is suffering in the garden, while he's awake and in prayer, the disciples fall asleep. And so it could possibly be that. Also in verse 26, you notice, so when the plants came up and bore grain, there's a long time elapse here from the time that the seeds are sown till the time that it's noticed. A lot of time goes by, and that'll be important later as we go along. So in verse 27, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. And in a very short space of time, Jesus basically illustrates for us in this parable one of the greatest theological and cosmic difficulties that almost imaginable. If God, if you've done this, if you've made all these things and you're good and it's good, how are there evil things in it, right? And Jesus goes right for this question. He admits it by telling the parable this way. He admits the difficulty of this. And basically, my stuttering in the beginning when I was reading was actually quite appropriate because they're like, well, uh, what? How, how could this be? They are shocked. They, they are expecting something completely different. They are expecting a completely di- different looking harvest, right? Full wheat, full grain, ready for harvest, ready to be taken in and enjoyed in a banquet or made into bread or something useful. And instead, what they find is that even though God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, says that everything is very good, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't feel very good. It doesn't seem very good. And in fact, there are very not good things in it. And we could go in a, there's thousands of books that have been written on this. No one has ever solved this. It will never be perfectly solved by human wisdom. But I can say this, the best answer to give to this question is the one Jesus gives in the parable, is the one that the landowner gives to his servants. An enemy has done this. And in our sort of vigor, especially as Reformed Christians in the Reformed tradition, we have a strong view of God's sovereignty, that he's, he's the master, he's the king of the field, he's, he's in charge of the destinies of men and angels and nations. And we never want to capitulate on that. We never want to weaken that. But, but we also, in trying to explain that fact, we don't want to say the opposite of what the landowner says in the peril. Actually, God did this. Because sort of God does everything by direct sort of uh, permission or power. We want to be able to leave space where an enemy has done this. This is an intrusion on a good situation that ultimately was not intended by the good creator. You say, well, how do you put those two things together? It's like, oh, well, write the next book on it. I don't know. But you hold those two things together, and we give the answer that the landowner gives. This has been done by an enemy. God is not the author of evil in any way, shape, or form. He is only ever good, righteous, and holy. And so here's the, the cognitive dissonance. And one, one thing that we also notice as we've come to this point up to verse 28, this is incredibly obvious, but we shouldn't miss it. The enemy who comes in is mimicking the landowner. He's mimicking him. He's also a sower who sows seeds. And we, we, we just read right over this because it's right there. He is, he is an, a sower of seeds. He mimics God. He mimics the Almighty, right? We're already kind of given the punchline in our, our answer key by Jesus. We know it's the Son of Man. And in our historical position, we understand that to be Jesus. And so I think we should be able to understand this here. He mimics him. He's a copycat. He looks in on 
what God is doing, and he says, oh, you're sowing seeds? Oh, I'm going to sow some seeds too. Let me put some bad ones in there, right? And he does that everywhere he goes. And not only is he uh, an enemy who sows seeds just like the landowner, but he's also specifically called a man in verse 28. It actually doesn't get translated through, but in Greek it's a man, an enemy, has done this. And it's important that it says that in Greek, a man, an enemy, because we just started the parable with this, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man. So you have a son of man who's sowing good seed, and you have a mimicking son of man who wants to be a son of man who's sowing bad seed, and he's copying the landowner, but he's doing so in a way that brings harm and brings devastation and sorrow into what otherwise would have been a beautiful setting. Even the weed he sows is most likely what's called bearded darnel. The grain itself looks different, but it resembles wheat in its early stages of growth. And only near the end of its growth cycle can you recognize that it's something harmful. So even in the seed, he's using something that looks like the good landowner, right? And so in all these ways, we can see, and and we know this fact, we know this fact that uh, Satan mimics God, and he puts corrupt, evil things forward that are destructive and harmful, and he says these things are good. Look at them. Look how beautiful they are. Look how it's just like what God is doing. Look at this. Look at this. Have this. Have that. And in fact, he's, he's just copying. So say, And here's, here's the, the fact that we need to fully be able to embrace is Satan is only a disruptor. He can only come into someone else's things and mess them up. And it's shameful. There's nothing honorable about this. It's his, it, to his great shame, his cosmic shame, he just disrupts. He comes into a banquet and, and throws the food on the floor and says, ha, 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 and walks out. No commitment, no responsibility, no attachment to what's there. He's a destroyer. He comes to steal and kill and destroy, as our shepherd tells us in John 10. Right? But by contrast, the landowner, he's original. He's invested. He's careful. He's industrious. And he's knowledgeable. He knows. Who's done this, Lord? How did the seed get here? He already knows. An enemy's done this. A man who is my enemy has done this. So he has this seemingly, the landowner kind of has this immediate knowledge of what's happened. He doesn't say, oh, well, let's figure it out. Let's go investigate. He says, I know. I know an enemy has done this. So in verse, at the end of verse 28, so the servant said to him, so they come, come back with another question. They give him a question, he gives them an answer, they come back with another question. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest gathering the seeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so this, the servant suggests a solution to the problem, but it's not a little misguided their suggestion is to immediately and forcibly remove the impure element and there have been a number of religious movements both in ancient jewish history and in first century jewish history and in religious movements today that that seems to be that's that's a tempting impulse isn't it just get rid of it make everything immediately pure fix it all uh you know sort of violently change the situation or force people into the right way um, you know, I have to confess that in, in my own personal life, like, I want everything to be right, so I'm like, and Sarah's got to be like, chill out. You know, I want to forcibly and immediately, I've got to fix it now, and Sarah's like, relax, right? And so that's, that's their first sort of impulse, right? And it reminds us of the story in Luke's gospel 
where Jesus sends messengers into a Samaritan town as he's making his way to Jerusalem, and they reject him. The Samaritans do. And then we read in that chapter, it says, when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. You see, it was the wrong time. The, the right, the right they, they were kind of, they were getting there, right? And the, the guys are right. We, we need to get the weed out of there. It's like, yes, amen. The, <laughs> you know, the, or the, the weeds. We got to get the weeds out. Yes, we do have to get the weeds out. That does have to happen, but not now. And that's what Jesus told James and John. Yes, the, the weed has to come out, but not now. There is a fire prepared, but that's not for now. And so he rebukes them. And so in their, in their sort of zealous nature for what's good and righteous, they actually miss a profound divine wisdom. And so the landowner then gives them this wisdom, right? He says, no, no, we're not doing that. Because if you pull up the weeds, they're connected to the wheat in an intimate way, and it will harm, it'll actually do more harm than good. And so he says, let both grow together until the harvest. So this is what divine wisdom looks like. It looks like the opposite of our usual impulse. That's the point. So we shouldn't think that we're overwise in light of Scripture's commands and in light of Scripture's leading and divine wisdom. We should probably consider that most of the time we're like the servants. Lord, should I do it now? <laughs> He's like, no, wait. You know, and, um, and it just shows that, he, that, that the landowner is knowledgeable, but he's also wise. He knows what to do with his knowledge, and he gives that to his servants, right? If I could translate what the Lord said to him, it's like, slow your roll, easy, tiger, not so fast, sport, you know? And I think God's telling us that alongside, like, like easy, calm down, relax. I've got this under control. That's actually, as wise as that sounds and as good as that is, it's actually not the best way. But we actually have to, we have to look this right, right in its face. The landowner's divine wisdom is not easy to accept. It's not. And it never will be. Let them grow together. Well, well Lord, for how long is the question. What do you mean let them grow together? What do you mean this harm will continue? What do you mean the confusion and the deceit and the malice and the evil and the heartbreak and the sorrow? How long? Right? And then that's the cry, right? And how, how much have we said this to God? How long, God? How long do I have to hurt like this? How long do I have to go on with this sin? How long do I have to watch and look into a world that I want to be pure and holy and good like you do? And it's not. And it's something often that's the opposite, and it's painful, and it's tiresome. And why do I always, why even despite my faith do I, I fear in the face of death? How long, O oh Lord? When, when is this going to be wrapped up and finished and glorified? So we shouldn't say it's easy. His wisdom is not easy, but it is wisdom. It is a wisdom beyond us. And so the takeaway is that the Lord just calls us to patient endurance in the face of real evil. We shouldn't diminish the evil to make the waiting easier, right? We should sit, call it for what it is. And if you're going through anything right now that's just, you're just, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let these two things grow together until you solve this? Then... Go to Psalm 131. It's one of the shortest psalms. And here's what it says. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth 
and forevermore. Compares God to a mother and himself to an infant leaning on his mother's breast. I've quieted my soul. And so sometimes we have to say, my eyes aren't lifted too high. I'm not trying to grasp the cosmos. I can't, in fact. But I, I do know that I'm with you and that you're with me. So I've quieted my soul. So go to Psalm 131 and read it and pray it. And maybe it'll calm your soul. So he leads them to patient endurance. We come now to verse 36, and we skip a section in between. For whatever reason, this parable and its, uh, its interpretation are kind of uh, set apart, and there's other parables in between that will be part of the series later on. But in verse 36, he starts to go through all of the interpretation, and he kind of gives us, this is where he gives us the, the cheat sheet. It says, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And we often call it the parable of the wheat and the tares, but it's interesting that the disciples are actually focused in on, they think the title of, this, of the sermon or the parable should be the parable of the weeds of the field. That's actually the central issue here. Your world's good, and there's bad stuff in it. Tell us the parable of the bad stuff. <laughs> Why is the bad stuff there? They're focusing in on that. Um, and so we should probably lean into that and focus in and continue to ask that question. But here's where the kicker is. The one who sows the seed is the son of man. And if you're a Bible nerd, you know what he's referencing. He's referencing the book of Daniel, chapter 7. That is the, the, the glorious figure of the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. In Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So immediately, Jesus has given us a big key here. I am that figure, right? Or at the very least, the son of man in my parable is that figure. And by the end of the gospel of Matthew, we're certain that Jesus is that figure because he says in chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because all authority in heaven and on earth is given to the son of man. And he says, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have this parable as like a man, and we have a man mimicking this man in the field, right? And we, that brings our thoughts to Adam and the original goodness of the world and what was supposed to happen. And all these things are kind of culminating in this interpretation, all these different ways of understanding it. So in verse 38, the field is the world, as we said at the very beginning, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And we have to stop for a moment and actually play some of this out, because this is going to be really important for understanding this as we go away together here. There's kind of an interpretive challenge here as we work through this parable. And the challenge is, what is the proper setting for the parable? What is the, what is the realm it's actually trying to isolate and then talk about? A.K.A., what is the parable about fundamentally? And there's some different views on this. There's some who say it's Israel. It's actually about Israel specifically. It's about Israel's history. And then it's about Jesus' 
bringing Israel's history to its culmination. And in that view, the end of the age, the harvest that is the end of the age, is actually Jesus bringing the old covenant to a conclusion and then bringing in the new age of the church where believers come in to the church, and it's basically the church age. I ultimately don't think this is how we should read it. Uh, For this reason, in verse 41, it is all causes of sin and all lawbreakers that are, are removed from God's good world. Whereas even after Christ ascends and reigns in heaven, Paul can still refer to the time in the world as this present evil age. So we are in the overlap of the ages, but not at the end as is envisioned in the parable right here. Secondly, the field is called the world, specifically. Jesus could have easily said the the field is Israel, or he could have made direct connections to Israel and Israel's history, but he didn't. He said the field is the world. The word there is cosmos, which we get cosmos, the whole cosmos. It's cosmic, right? The whole thing is the word that we get there. The field is the cosmos. And in light of the full removal of evil, it points to the end of cosmic history altogether, not just to Christ inaugurating the new covenant. So that the world, as we understand it now, is a mixture of good and bad, but when the end of the age comes, as envisioned in this parable, there will be no mixture. That's the whole point. The weeds will be removed, and what will be left is only the good result of the originally good intended harvest. And so I don't think we should see this as I being isolated to Israel. And that comes from a guy who's a, I'm an Israel guy. So if you talk about pressure to read it that way, I was like, I want it to be Israel. Um, The most popular view in the church, the way the church has, the Jew Gentile church under Jesus Christ has read it is, and this is probably actually what first comes to your mind with this parable. It's the first one that always came to my mind until I wrote this sermon was that um, it's the church. Field is the church. The good seed are the true Christians. The bad seed are the fake ones. Christians have to endure this state of affairs until God purifies the church at the end of history. I don't think it's that. It it can't be that either. And here's why. This forgets that in in Matthew 18, Jesus uses the word ecclesia for the church. He has a concept of ecclesia, but he, he doesn't choose ecclesia here. He doesn't say the field is the ecclesia. It's the church. He says the field is the world. But other than that, in the same chapter, when he does refer to the church, he actually sets out a program for excommunication in the church for those who resist the reign of God, specifically in the confines of the gathered people of God in the church, and they're actually to be removed prior to the end of the age, prior to the end of the harvest. They're to be treated as tax collectors and Gentiles if they refuse to repent. And so that's not, that, that also, it doesn't fit our image here. It's not fitting, right, because it comes prior to the end of the age. So what I'm submitting to you all, if you'll follow me, is that this parable is about God's reign in the big old sense. Like God in his world, God is the creator of all that he's made, men and women and children, you know, and the, the good being and the bad being introduced into that good world and everything in it. But and this is the beauty of, of reading it this way, and I think it's the way Jesus wants us to read it, is because it allows space for the sons of the kingdom to incorporate the whole history of God's faithful people in Israel, and then the newly created Israel, 
that Jesus creates in the new age as well, in the overlap of the ages. So reading this as cosmic, as taking in the whole world, actually incorporates both Israel and the church in this big, huge parable that just gulps over everything, which is wonderful. And we should see the sons of the kingdom as those good and righteous and faithful people, but not just Matthew and James and John, but Abraham, our father, and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, right? Sons of the kingdom. And so it's God's full and final removal of any evil thing in all creation that resists his rule and threatens his good intentions for it. I think that's the main point of the parable. And so as we continue, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. And then we have this whole thing where the weeds are gathered and they're thrown into this fiery furnace. The Son of Man sends out his angels. They gather everything out that's bad. And then they burn it, right, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth from verses 39 to 42. And basically, I, think, I just think angels are angels here. I know it can mean messenger, but I just think it's, it's just describing something supernatural. Like really, when God wraps the whole thing up, He's literally going to send angels to do his work because it's going to take something forcibly. See, the believers are here on earth getting beat up by the bad guys going, Lord, how long? They don't have the power to resist physically or, or forcibly. But the point is, is that the king does. The son of man to whom all authority and power in heaven on earth is given, he can intervene forcibly to change that situation, and he will. That's the point. This parable promises us that he will. There will be a final end to all this evil in the world. And that gives the believer, the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom, great hope. So just like in Revelation in chapter 14, from chapter 14 on in the book of Revelation, we get a flurry of angelic activity. They're getting sent out, pouring out wrath and bowls of plagues. And it's, it's just crazy if you've ever read it before. It's insane. You know? And I think that's kind of the image here. And it's all sort of pouring all this bad these weeds into the sort of bucket of judgment, which is a pit of a burning, smoking furnace at the end of the age, at the time of the final judgment. And so it points this out to us, too, that we should never shy away from. There is a judgment for the wicked. There is a judgment for the wicked, and it will come. It will come. And they will laugh, and they will scorn, and, and they will be in ease and prosperity, it seems, and they will stand before the God of this world, his field, and they will be judged. And we have to find a theological space in our minds and in our hearts to actually call this what it is, good news. It is good news that those who continue to resist his rule and destroy people and destroy the earth are finally and fully judged at the end of the age. That's right, that's good and just and holy. And there's, you know, sometimes in our ease in America, we, we, we just kind of feel bad for everybody because it's like, but in some other countries, when your wife is being taken away from you and your family is being killed in front of your eyes and your, your village is being burned, that will give you a sense of what it means for someone to rejoice when their enemies are taken out, when their enemies are finally removed. And that's why we have pictures in, in the Bible of celebration in, in face of the death of the wicked. Not like, oh man, like that's, that's not how it should be. Well, number one, that's not how it should be because God's world was good and an enemy did this and introduced it in there. But now that the situation is there and they continue to resist, even though the landowner says, let them grow together for a long time, space to repent, space to notice God's goodness, they resist ultimately and they're judged 
And so we don't want to shy away from that. It's in so many places in the Bible. To get rid of that teaching in Christian faith would just be like, you might as well just get rid of your Bible. Um, and it gives hope to those who are oppressed. It gives hope to those who are being treated unjustly in the world. And then finally, verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is, this is wonderful. This is the culmination to where the field is going. This is why we have the harvest. This is the whole point. It's going to, God is, he wants something out of the world. That's the point. He wants something, and he has a goal, and he has a plan and a purpose. And what he wants is people that shine. What he wants is people who are righteous. What he wants is people who walk in a way that's blameless before him. And he is going to produce that by his power, by his sovereignty, by his grace, by the atonement and, and offering of our Lord Christ. He is going to have that at the end of the age. And we shouldn't imagine, we shouldn't let our committedness to sort of justification by faith. We shouldn't reduce the salvation and re revelation of the sons of God that's being talked about here only to justification. We want to take in the way Matthew, Jesus talks in the gospel of Matthew. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The wise man is the one who built his house on a rock, is the one who listens and does what I say. When the winds come, he will be steady, but everyone else will be washed away. Or in chapter 25, the, the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, right? It's the, the sheep who go out and they, they take care of the prisoner and they clothe the naked and they feed the hungry. He says, blessed are you who, who are where the kingdom of my father is prepared for you. But what happens? The sheep are separated from the goats just like our wheat and tares. And the sheep go into everlasting uh, joy and felicity and eternal peace and the goats go into everlasting torment and fire. And so we, we really want to understand this as this is something that eventuates in people that have learned to live genuinely righteously in their life, not on their own, not without God's grace, not apart from his atonement, but this is a real thing that we should seek after and look for in our own lives. Overall, what we notice is that this whole parable is basically framed by the whole book of Daniel. Because in chapter 7, we learn that the Son of Man is the one who reaps a harvest from the world and gains that full dominion over all the world. And in chapter 3, remember, there's that blazing furnace. And Daniel and his friends, if they don't bow down and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, guess what's prepared for them? A big blazing furnace. But in our parable, it's reversed. Whereas the wicked had prepared a furnace for the righteous who resist their gods, now in this parable, it's the, it's the righteous side, it's God's side who have a furnace prepared for those who resist the worship of the king, of Yahweh, right, of the true God of Israel. So that situation that was in Daniel 3 is now reversed in this parable, and there is a furnace not prepared for uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they are popularly named in their Babylonian names, but it's prepared for the wicked. And then finally, in, verse, in chapter 12 that we just read in preparation for the sermon, the righteous are said to shine out like stars forever and ever. So Jesus is basically giving us a, a mini sermonette illustration from the book of Daniel almost in a way, and we should be able to read them together. So here, coming to a close, here is the goal of all creation, of all the world. God's bride, his handiwork, his harvest, the good seed will come to fruition and inhabit the world in splendor and holiness as his image bears there will be wheat in the barn and food on the table, a banquet, gladness, song, and rejoicing for the sons and daughters of the kingdom. 
but ultimately the wicked will perish and be removed. And so in closing, I kind of wanted to read, um, there's a beautiful prophecy in Isaiah in, the, in chapter 11 about this figure who comes from the stump of Jesse, who was the father of King David. And I just want to read this and let's just hear this and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 9 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that, Lord, he not only taught us about the kingdom of God, but literally, Lord, there, there really is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is like a man. It is like a man. It's like the son of man, for in him all the kingdom and all the world belongs properly to him. Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray for us all together. Lord, we're in this world, this world that you meant to be so good and filled with delights and, and pleasures, Lord, in your presence forevermore. And even we have been part of introducing evil into this world by our own sin, by our own rebellion. And yet in your kindness, you've reached us out to us in Christ and you've, you've uh, begun to taught, teach us how to live as you would have us live by your grace. And so, Lord, we pray for all those who are in situations that are unimaginably dark and sorrowful and that just snuff the life out, Lord. We pray that you would meet them in their darkness, that you would um, be a light to them, Lord, as they make their way in this world where all they ever experience and see is darkness and trial. Lord, would you lift them up and lead them to Christ? And Lord, give us patience as we look out on the world. It is so messed up in so many ways, but Lord, there's hope for it because there's you, and you are a God who is able to accomplish what you promise. And so we look to you to heal this whole world, and we look to Christ, who is the one who has the ability to do it. In his name, amen.